We're looking at the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to talk about Stephen. After that, it's going to be fun. The, the, the name of the uh, sermon today is A Tale of the Scale. So I have brought my scale here. Uh, I need you to, everybody, line up right down here. No? We don't want to do that? I was just going to weigh everybody. You, you want me to weigh? Yeah, that's not likely to happen. The last time I got on the scale, this is one of those talking scales, and said, could one of you get off? <laughs> there, is a, there is a new free plan for weight loss. Did you all know this? I can teach it to you really quickly. It's free, okay? Everybody turn your head to, I'm going to do the mirror. Turn your head to the right like this. Can you turn your head to the right? Now turn it to the left. Now do it again. Turn it to the right, to the left. Now faster. Right, left, right. When anybody offers you food, this is what you do. <laughs> or did you read about the woman? Said that she found a new lipstick that absolutely helped her to lose a tremendous amount of weight. Then she found out it was called super glue. <laughs> for me, it's hard to relate to those that need to gain weight. It's, it's always hard for me. I, I grew up, Randy Scott was my best friend. He was 6'2", he weighed 140 pounds when he graduated from high school, and that's because he had beefed up. He weighed about 115 most of his high school uh, career. I would go over to his house, and, and Randy Scott's mother would say, George, stop eating Randy, eat more. That was the, the way, that's the way that deal worked, because I was always chunky, and he was always skinny. It's hard for me to relate to those who need to gain weight. But a baby who does not gain weight, there's a terminology, it's called failure to thrive. And the tail of the scale, when you put your baby on that scale, if it's not growing the way it should, it's a horrible thing. So if we did, if we took the scale and we didn't m measure how heavy you are physically, but how you're doing spiritually, how would you measure up spiritually? In Daniel chapter 5, I think some of the most chilling words you'll ever see, uh, Daniel has, gone, uh, has been called in because Belteshazzar has this feast and, and he's used the, the implements from the temple and, and a, a, a finger appears and writes in rock wall, in, in a plaster wall, and it's meaning, meaning, tikal ufarsin is the words that come up there. And the tikal means this, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Daniel delivers this message to this, to this man, and he says, Do you understand? You've been weighed by God, and you don't weigh anything. You've been, you, you have a failure to thrive spiritually. So my question to you today is, who, in who or what are you trusting for your spiritual life itself? In who or what are you trusting to gain momentum, to gain strength, to grow spiritually? In who or what are you trusting today? The tail of the scale. And we have the story of Stephen. It's a tremendous story. Stephen uh, gives this tremendous message in, in Acts chapter 7. If you were with us last week, just to give you a, a brief uh, synopsis of where we are, Stephen has been called before the Sanhedrin because he's been a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit. And I guess we're going to ask two questions from this chapter. It's a long chapter, and we're just going to take portions of it. But here's the first question. What do we believe will tip the scales? And go to Acts chapter 7. I'm just going to read the first seven verses, and, and we'll talk about this first part of it. But Acts chapter 7, verse 1, Then the high priest, probably Caiaphas, asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Very powerful word, accusate. Uh, listen, it's where we get the word acoustics, but also uh, accusations. Listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, 
Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. Now look at verse 5. He, that is God, God gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. He rounds it off. Verse 7, But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. You see, the first... The first part of this, uh, what do we believe, I guess the question we need to ask ourselves, are we depending on a place? It's the question Stephen's asking of these people. Are we depending on a place? And, and Stephen is answering the charges, but he's not trying to defend himself. He's answering the charges because what they have said is, in charging him, is that he has, he has said bad things about Israel, he said bad, said bad things about the temple, he said bad things about them, and so he's trying to answer the charges. But he's not looking for an acquittal. It's more a defense of Christianity. It's, it's what we call apologetics. It's why we believe what we believe. And he, and he does this masterful job because he, he begins to focus their attention on, on ground, on land, on a place. And he talks about uh, Abraham, and he, and he builds common ground because he keeps saying, our father Abraham, our fathers. And he talks about Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and, and the, the twelve. And, and he talks about all these, and he keeps building common ground, but he's focusing down on the land, the land, the land, the land that was promised. And what he is arguing is that Abraham never saw the fulfillment of the promise that God gave in Genesis 12:1, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. He has no children, but he said, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky, and I'm going to give you a land. But Abraham never saw the fulfillment. He saw one son, but he never saw the fulfillment. And he certainly never saw the fulfillment of the land. And then God goes on to say, and by the way, neither did Isaac or Jacob or Jacob's 12 sons or Moses all the way through. And then God warned Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved. They would be mistreated. They were going to go to Egypt and spend 400 plus years there. What I think is interesting is when God, after all of these hundreds of years, from the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, the 400 years in Egypt, And they come and they finally get to the edge of the land. What did Israel do? What did the Israelites do when they got there? They balked. Numbers 14, 23. The Lord says, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Look at that again. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised promised on oath to their forefathers. And then look at that last line. Would that apply today? No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God says, I promised you the land, and I brought you to the edge of the land, and you sent 12 spies out. And Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we need to go on the land. And 10 others said, no, it's, it's too hard. The people are too big. They're too warlike. We can't accomplish this. We can't do this. And God says, I've promised you the land. And he says, because you don't believe me, because you don't trust me, because you won't follow me, you've treated me with contempt. 
God says, I will build my church. And we say, oh, but we can't witness. Oh, but we can't go to the lost. Oh, but we can't do this. Oh, we can't do that. We can't afford this. We can't. And the Lord says, I promise I will build my church. And the gates of hell, of Hades, will not prevail against it. And I wonder sometime if we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, don't you understand what I promised? Folks, we have been blessed. We live in a land where we have the freedom to share the gospel. We have been blessed as a nation. People came here for religious freedom. I don't care what the schools are teaching in history. It was not economics. It was not about this or it was about that. They came here to be free to worship the Jehovah God that they knew, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and because of that, God blessed this land. And we've treated God with contempt. And we've said we can't have prayer in our schools anymore. And we've, we've said we can't do this and we can't do that. What I think is interesting, we're going to go here in a minute, but Acts 7.33 says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. He's talking to Moses. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses never got into Canaan. Where's the holy ground? It's at Mount Sinai. Wherever God meets with you is holy ground. We're going to take a trip to Israel, and I'd love for you to go to Israel with us, but it's not really about just being in holy ground, because when we were singing, it is well with your soul, we were standing on holy ground because the Lord was meeting with us here. And the Lord says, I have a place, but don't focus on the place. Are we depending on a place? Number two, are we depending on keeping the law? Are we depending on keeping the law? Look at verse 30, Acts chapter 7, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. Again, you know the story of Moses. He grew up in Egypt. He killed a man. He went out into the wilderness, and that's where we pick up the story. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. Don't miss that. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though the angel, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. And Stephen continues his argument. Not only were they depending on a place, but are they depending on keeping the law? Every good Jew knew the story of the burning bush. Every good Israelite knew all about Moses and revered him. He was synonymous with the law that God gave. But did you notice verse 38? He received living words to pass on to us. 
Weren't the Old Testament people saved by keeping the law? I mean, the Old Testament people kept the law and they were saved and the New Testament people had the cross. No, the Old Testament people were saved by looking forward to the cross. All of the law, all that they went through with the sacrifices pointed them toward an ultimate sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ. The people in the Old Testament were saved exactly like the people today are saved by going and looking at the cross. They just had to look forward. We have to look back. Romans 3.20 says, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The law just points out the need for Christ. There are a whole lot of, of instances in the Old Testament. I, I think Joseph is a type of Christ. I, I think Moses is a type of Christ. In fact, Daryl Bach, in his, in his book, on Acts says this, in looking at the entire portrait of Moses, one can also sense the potential typography, and that means he's a type, he's, a, he's an image of what's to come. And he gives, he lists six things. Number one, the man rejected by the people becomes a ruler. Was Moses rejected by the people? Sure. Stephen points this out, you rejected Moses. Was Jesus rejected? Uh, absolutely. Number two, he's a deliverer through signs and wonders. Moses at the Red Sea, Moses striking the rock and speaking to the rock. Water comes flowing out. He was a deliverer through signs and wonders. Was Jesus, uh, he, he healed the lame and the blind and the deaf. Number three, he's a prophet and prototype of the coming one. Was Moses a prophet? Absolutely. He wrote Psalms. He wrote, uh, he wrote some other things where there's great prophecy. Number four, Moses was a mediator between God and humanity. Moses is the one who went up Mount Sinai to get the law. Moses is the one who talked to the Lord and came back and told the people. And now we, we were told that we have one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He's a mediator. Number five, he's a receiver and giver of the words of life. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Number six, he's rejected finally by his people. And Moses was a type of who Jesus Christ is, the Messiah, the one sent from God. And how many times do we look at what Moses taught and miss the message? John 5, 39 and 40 says it this way, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is speaking to the, to the most religious people he could find, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the very people that Stephen is standing in front of, and he told them, this book is all about me. It's all centered. The Old Testament is about Christ. The New Testament is about Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about God. Are we depending on a place? Are we de are depending on trying to keep the law? Number three, are, de are we depending on a church? Go to verse 44, Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Are we depending on a church? Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. The tabernacle was given uh, by God when they got into the desert, and they built it according to the exact dimensions that God gave them because it's a picture of, of the, of the heavenly throne room. It says, Our forefathers had the tabernacle, the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses. 
according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High, that's a, that's a high name for God, God does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And the Jews grew up knowing the, knowing the importance of the temple and the tabernacle. The temple and the tabernacle were where they could come and offer a sacrifice. It was the only place they could come if they did something wrong, if they sinned, where they could come and and slaughter an animal and cover that sin on a temporary basis until the covering could be made permanently by Jesus Christ. The temple was the place where God displayed his glory, the only place you you could make a sacrifice. At the time of Christ... They had been building on that current temple for 46 years. Were they really slow? I mean, were they really slow? Again, if you go with us to Jerusalem, one of the things that we will show you, there are rocks there, there are stones there that they have hewn out that weigh as much as a 767 full of fuel and all the passengers on board. That's how much one of the stones that's in the base of the temple mount that's still there weighs, and you can see it. No, they weren't really slow. Although if they had had HGTV, they could have completed it in 30 minutes. If Mike Holmes did it, it would have taken an hour. But other than that, they, you know, they had to take 46 years to get it all done. And Stephen warns of missing the person the temple is meant to honor. And Jesus points this out in, in Matthew 12, verse 6. Look what it says. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Jesus says, do you understand the temple is, is awesome, the church is awesome, but it should always be pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, there are people who use verses 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you, make, will you build for me? People will use those two verses and they say, we don't worship in a church, we worship in, the, in creation. We worship out on the lake. That's a good excuse for them to not come to church. Problem is, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that it's vital that we meet together to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to encourage each other. Stephen's point is not that. Stephen's point is that we have this cramped view of God. We have this cramped image of who God is. And and Stephen says, don't you understand? God is, is huge. God is so much larger. God is so much more vast, so much more powerful. And Stephen emphasized God's initiative in the entire narrative. He's saying this is when God appeared. This is when God spoke. This is when God sent. This is when God promised. This is when God punished. This is when God rescued. It's all about God. And if we're not careful today, folks, we begin to depend on a place. We were born in America, so we're blessed. We begin to depend on what we do. Oh, I'm better than my neighbors, so God's going to bless me. We begin to depend even on a church. Well, I'm a member of that church, and so God's going to bless me. It's all about that. And the Lord says, no. And then something amazing happens. Look at verse 51. Because what does God say? We know what we believe will tip the scales, but what does God say will tip the scales? And I want to point out two things from these last verses. Look at verse 51, Acts 7, 51. 
Stephen is still speaking. Up to this point, it seems like a historical lesson. And all of a sudden, he changes pace. He says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Woo, hello. I'll bet they loved hearing that. Then it gets worse. With uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. The him refers to the righteous one. Stephen just said they murdered Jesus Christ. They murdered the Messiah. They murdered the one that they'd been looking for for hundreds of years. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were so happy. They said, thank you, Stephen, for that message. Is that what they said? No. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. The sun cannot reveal, cannot compare to the glory of our God. Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. From time to time, I'm asked to pray at public gatherings. From time to time, I'm told that because of politics, that what we're supposed to do is that we're supposed to just say the name of the Lord, but we're not supposed to close our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. And I always say, I'll be glad to come pray, but this is the way it is. I pray to the Lord Jesus because if Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, then I'm going to pray to the Lord Jesus. And when I close my prayer because I'm on a personal basis with him, I always say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's funny. I always get these looks after I've prayed, but they keep asking me back. What does God say will tip the scales? Number one, rely on your faith in Jesus Christ. Rely on your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't believe Stephen had a meltdown. I don't believe that he just lost it. I, I think that it, this is the logical conclusion of his message. He illustrated through, through hundreds of years of history how the Jews had missed God's plan for them. And when he built his conclusion, he then exposed them for who they were. He says, this is what you believe, and here's the scale. You've used this scale, and it's your scale, and you say that this is what you've come out. But here's what God says, and he exposes them for who they really are and what they've really done. I'm going to knock that over as sure as the world. He was passionate about what he believed. He knew that the men standing in front of him were completely away from where God wanted them to be. What are you passionate about? There's been a lot of furor this week over a comment of one of the political candidates who talked about the term legitimate rape. I don't know if you've seen that in the news. Our daughter Elizabeth writes a blog. Our daughter Elizabeth when she was just a little child, we left her with someone that we trusted, a family friend who raped our daughter. I've never said that from the pulpit before. 
when I found out when she was a teenager, as a father, I died inside. Let me tell you something. 20% of women will suffer sexual abuse. I'm pro-life, but I'm anti-stupid. And when someone says that there's such a thing as legitimate rape, they need to, to pay the consequences of that. Rape is wrong. Sexual abuse is wrong. And our daughters and our sisters and our mothers and our friends have paid a horrible price. And it's time for us to stand up and say, it must stop now. And we need to get passionate about some things that are happening in our nation that we don't want to talk about. And it's ugly and it's nasty and we don't want to mention it. But sometimes it needs to be said. When our daughter wrote a blog this week, I've never been prouder of my daughter in my life than what she said in that blog about what had happened to her and that she would not remain silent. Stephen uses three phrases here that are it's the only time that they're found in the, in the New Testament. The first one is that they were stiff-necked, sclerotracheloi, sclerotracheloi. It's a Luke's term probably because it's a medical term, the trachea, the, uh, it's all about the throat. He says literally you're, you're unable to turn your head, you're stiff-necked. He also uses the term for uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's not the part that's normally circumcised. And I'm sure they're thinking, oh my goodness, what is he saying here? He's saying that even though you act as if you have had all the things done to you that need to be done, the one part that really needed to be cut open were your ears and your heart so you could hear, so you could feel. And he says you always resist. The three phrases are carefully chosen to expose their true spiritual condition. And what he says, that Moses was more interested in his relationship with God than with the law or the land. And he exposes them for being more interested in their relationship with the law and the land than they are with Jesus Christ, with God. Exodus thirty-three fifteen reveals, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. At one point, the Lord says, listen, I, I've, I'm done with them, Moses. They're not following me. They're not doing what they said that they need to do. This is what's happened to them. And, and he says, why don't you just let them go ahead and go? They can go to the land. They can go back. I don't really care where they go. Just go. And Moses says, Lord, if you don't go, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses says, I, I can't do this. Moses came to the point in that personal relationship where he said, it is my faith in you that, that is everything. It is your relationship with me that is everything. Don't send me if you don't go. Do you pray that in the morning, on Monday morning when you go out to work? If your presence doesn't go with me, don't send me from here. Do you pray that in the morning when you get up and, and you realize that you're going to have a challenge at your, or your work or your school? Do you, get, do you pray that in the morning you, you're retired and you don't, you don't have that, but you have a, a medical appointment that you're really dreading? Do you pray that every morning when you get up, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't send me from here. Rely on your faith, your relationship in Jesus Christ. Number two, refocus your vision on Jesus Christ. They accused Stephen of slandering Moses. He accused them of murdering Jesus. Huge difference. And Jesus had promised in, in John 16, 13 that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth and, and they resisted him. Do you understand what, 
what Stephen, he, he was very careful. He didn't say that they grieved him. He didn't say that they, they uh, quenched him. He said that they resisted him. To grieve is a love term. If you love someone and you grieve them, that means you hurt them. You, you somehow, it, it's just that love. It's a, it's a change in the relationship because that you're already in that love relationship and you grieve them because they realize that you've hurt them. If, if you quench something, it's to put out the fire. Sometimes we do that by trying to grab the authority back from God. Sometimes we do that with, with false doctrine and, and, and we quench it. It's like putting a blanket over fire or, or trying to put, put the fire down. But resisting is the initial reaction. It's an initial refusal to give in. He said, from the very beginning, you have resisted the Holy Spirit. They understood. They understood Stephen's message. In verse 54, it says they were furious. They were cut to the heart. It, it, literally, it says they were sawn in two. It was as if someone was trying to dissect their whole body, and they were getting hacked across the midsection. It says they were cut to the heart. That was a, that was a gross terminology in, in their warfare when someone was taking a sword and just whacking over and over until it got all the way down to the heart trying to cut them in two. They were furious. And then Stephen says something. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus said something very similar in, in Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69. He says he would be seated. They would see him seated at the right hand of God. He said that during the trial, and that's all they needed to send him to the cross. Stephen had a very high view of Christology, of, of his study of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, the logos that we talked about. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then he prayed. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. He, then he prayed one other prayer. Lord, forgive them. Because when we begin to refocus our vision, not only resting in our faith and relying on our faith, but when we begin to refocus our vision of who Jesus Christ is, it leads us to forgive in ways that we can't imagine. Do you understand? He knew that they went screaming at the top of their lungs. They pulled him out. This was not a trial. This was a mob. This mob took him out, and they took their coats off because they didn't want to get their coats dirty, and they threw him at the feet of, of this man, Saul of Tarsus, We'll later know him as Paul. He's the one that was from the, the temple of the freedmen that we looked at, or the synagogue of the freedmen that we looked at last week. Saul of Tarsus, this Paul, was one that probably is who instigated them bringing Stephen in in the first place. And you can just see Saul, Paul, standing there, and, and he's looking at this, and he's thinking, yes, I've got it done. By the way, the only way that Luke knew what happened to Stephen was because Saul of Tarsus later would have told him because he was there. And Luke looked at Saul and his buddies and said, Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, 
I love the terminology. He fell asleep. In the New Testament, when a believer dies, it's always the picture of falling asleep. Because when you fall asleep, Kathy wakes me up many times and says, take the book off your chest and put the book over on the nightstand and roll over and go back to sleep. Because I fall asleep with this book, and sometimes the book wakes me up. And the last thing I see is this chapter, and sometimes I'll say, oh, I wasn't, a, I wasn't asleep, and I bring the book back up and read two more words before it falls back again. And the last vision I see sometimes is this book that I'm studying, that I'm reading as I go to sleep at night. But imagine the last thing that you saw was something on this earth, and when you open your eyes again, Stephen just didn't see the image, didn't see the picture of Jesus He sees Jesus kneeling down by him. Hey, Stephen, wake up, buddy. You're here. You're home. And the first image you see is not some angel. And the first image you see is not some white light. And the first image you see, I am convinced with all of my heart, is Jesus. And I love the fact that it says he's standing Because I believe Jesus was going, great job, Stephen. It's his applause. It's his approval. It's well done, good and faithful servant. Now, here's the question for you. What do you think is going to tip the scales in your favor? What are you relying on? Your faith? Who you know Jesus Christ to be? Or anything else. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What an amazing God you are, Father. You've led us to a study in your word today that far exceeds anything that we could imagine. Not because of my eloquence, but because of what you've written there. A story of one of your faithful servants, not a pastor, not an elder, not a bishop, a man who waited tables. A man who stood strong in his faith. A man who stood when it counted and saw you and your glory. And Father, you used Stephen in an amazing way to ignite your church to light it on fire. And Father, use the story of Stephen, his life that he really lived, his sacrifice that he really paid the forgiveness that he really showed, use that to light a fire in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name.